Glad to see everyone. I'll get us started with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship of the saints and for the authority of the word of God. Thank you for your mighty deeds in history to make a people for your name. And may we learn something, many things actually, as we uh, open up the scriptures and see what you've done and what you've said. Give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, today, back in Acts, we've been studying the narrative of Peter's arrest. And this was the last slide we were on a few weeks ago, so a few, about a month ago almost, because I ended up preaching three weeks in a row. So it's been a while since I've had Sunday school teaching as my duty and privilege, I must say. And in this Peter narrative, if you weren't here a month ago, we've been exploring what I believe, based on the study of the Greek New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was Luke's purposeful allusions to the Exodus in Luke Acts. Okay? The terminology shows that um, a number of things that happened in Luke and a number of things that happened in Acts are reminding us of the exodus out of Egypt and how God rescues his people from peril and brings them to himself. And so I, I started talking about that quite a bit last time. So let me read verses 10 and 11. Now, in, in, um, let me just read up to verse 10. I have my English text out here so we get an idea why we're even talking about that analogy with the Exodus. Uh, Acts 12, 1, about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. That was one of our first clues. The term mistreat is reminding us of how the Israelites were handled in Egypt. They were mistreated. And he had James and the brother of John put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, now here this would be the same opponents uh, who opposed Jesus Christ and said, crucify him. Remember now the early Christians were mostly Jews. We just recently in Acts saw where some Gentiles started to be saved. God-fearing Gentiles. That was in Acts. We just saw that. And more of that's going to happen. The church has just gone to Antioch, which becomes like a staging point for missionary activity. So God is saving some Gentiles. But this here is speaking of those Jews who rejected the Messiah. So he saw it please them. So he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. That links this, the narrative links it to the time when Jesus was crucified in earlier years before this, some years before this. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now, as we will see, the implication is he's going to kill him. He's going to put him to death and the people are going to be pleased with that. So they want Peter dead also. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer, this is important, for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So they're praying to God. Verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching the prison. Now, as we said earlier, that's overkill. They weren't, they were, why were they so afraid he's going to get out? How many chains does it take and how many guards does it take to keep one Jewish fisherman in a prison? 
evidently an awful lot. <laughs> and, and the sad thing is it didn't work. Or to, from, their, from their perspective, from ours, it's a great thing. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off. We talked about that. And the angel said to him, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and continued to follow, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he'd seen a vision. Now, remember, he was dead asleep. And this whole thing was, is this real? Am I dreaming or is this really happening? Okay. And when they had, now here's our slide. Now, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. So there's no doubt this is supernatural. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. So here we have a supernatural rescue and... uh, this was done about the time of the Passover. Now this, I have been saying, and I think there's very good uh, textual evidence for this in the original Greek, that this is purposely an allusion to the Passover. God rescues people from the hand of the enemy who wants to kill them and brings them out in order to bring them to himself and make them a people. The term rescue in the Greek, exirio, this here happened at the time of the Passover, and it echoes, there's an echo of Exodus. The same word in the Greek is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament commonly used in the New Testament of Exodus 3.8 and in, within Exodus also 18.8-10. So the rescue of the people of Israel from the hand, this is typical terminology, rescued from the hand of, the hand of the Egyptians, this was what happened with Peter. And it says, they rescued me from the hand of Herod from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Notice there, I have that highlighted in red, we're expecting. This reinforces the statement we made earlier when I was teaching this, that they'd already killed one Christian and the expectation was at a dramatic moment At this point, they'd bring out Peter and execute him. So he was rescued by God from Herod, and the people that hoped to see him executed were disappointed. Anybody want to discuss that as we go along here? Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah, I just... uh you know, Jesus was resurrected. You know, God allowed Jesus to be crucified, of course, and we know why. And then Jesus was resurrected. Now here, at this Passover, Peter was rescued. In other words, yeah. he, he, to me, there's, it's an interesting kind of a parallel between what God, God is teaching, he's telling us, that he will mercifully rescue us. And I think, of, I think of the Hebrew concept of hesed, which means God doing for us what we can't do for yeah, ourselves. Yeah, loving kindness or yes. grace. And yeah. so this is just a, like a parallel almost to the, to the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus was crucified. Peter was spared. But Jesus was rescued from the dead through the resurrection. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about this. For those of you who are new, back to the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, we were already 
getting a preview for, of this sort of thing through Jesus and now Peter and what would happen. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there and they were talking in Luke, it says in the Greek, they were talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish. The term exodus is literally in Luke chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Jesus was going to go on an exodus. And now here we have another illusion. Yes. Yeah, so I was um, actually I was reading a book the other day, and it was talking about the testimony of a church that um, they, they had actually, similar to this, like they'd, if I remember correctly, the, the church was praying uh, earnestly while Paul is, you know, in prison. Peter. This is Peter, okay, and then, and then he, you know, gets rescued by God. Well, this, uh, this church, um, same kind of deal. It was like the church was dead. The guy, the pastor goes on a vacation. He comes, you know, and he just felt on his heart. He's, man, if, if we would be a church that would seek God and pray. He, he just, he came back. He said, this is what I feel is from God. And he says, this is the gauge that we're going to be successful and is the gauge that we that we come on prayer night and just as a congregation pray and it was and and god moved because it was it was that same day that he had a a pastor that was just he never saw him again but he came up that day said three things he said um the uh amount that the church is popular you can look on sunday morning the amount that the pastor is popular you can come on sunday night or saturday night see how many people and the amount that Jesus is popular, you know, come on prayer night and see how many people. And anyways, but the, the people started praying, and, and God started moving. And it just well, Hold on a second. What does it mean, God moving? Whether I'll, that, I'll what does explain. that mean? I'll explain that. So, like, their church, you know, they were just kind of, you know, passively listening, and, and just, you know, everybody was kind of, you know, their heart wasn't really in it. But when God, like, gives you words to say or when he you know the true knowledge of god it lights you on fire for who he is it's like but what does that light on fire mean yeah it's Please like define a, that. a passion or uh you know it's it's people you know, are every, passionate for rock concerts you can have different kinds of passions but there is a, a real passion that's like when when you go when you get the knowledge of god like you're willing to do things for jesus because you're so in, you know, you just, he just captivates you. But uh, before I get into all that, I would like to say the parallel, because what I was, the reason I even bring up that is because I see this story here, and it's like you can take it maybe just as descriptive. But I, when, I was, when I was reading this, which happened, I think it was 19, was it 70-something? But it was, it was just, you know, what, God's, what God did through this man, and it was, I mean... Okay. But anyway, but I'd like to say the parallel, because I thought... When I was reading it, it was like, well, what if, you know, it was like, this is what God does. Like, this is the testimony of what he did through this man when they, when they started praying. Like, God. So we want to emphasize stayed, the man or moving. God's grace. So I wanted to emphasize, it's like, when I, when I read that, it's like, this is the God that acts on the behalf of the, the people who love him. Like, this is a God that, that is, like, personal, that I, that I, you know, like, the testimony was just like, Wow, this is this is how God okay. answered the prayers of His people. And then I thought, comparing it to scriptures like this, I thought, you know, man, if this same God, you know, what if I read the Bible like this? Like, this is how God is. Like, this is when I read that book, it was like, wow, this is what they asked of God. This is what God did. And when I read the Bible, <laughs> I read it almost like this is what God was. You know, this is what God okay. used to do. Okay. Well, let, let, let's but move on not. here. Let me explain something here. God never changes, okay? And in the 70s, I read books like that, too. What they did was they were pietistic books claiming that there are some higher order holy Christians, and God loves them, but the rest of us are just kind of doofuses, okay? And I was impressed by that, but let me explain what actually happened here. That's what I think is really amazing. It'll give us all hope, okay? I'm not saying you believe that. I'm just telling you what what I thought back in those days. What we're going to find out, Eric, is that he wasn't rescued because these people had such tremendous faith. They had obedience because they were praying. 
because when he got out, they didn't believe it was him. Right, right. That's right. And Peter himself didn't believe it was him being delivered. That's right. And so this was a supernatural act of God that didn't happen because of the expectations of the people praying. They didn't expect that it would happen. What God asks of us is faithfulness and trust. And he uses the prayers of ordinary Christians to do extraordinary things. We've seen the same thing happen in our little congregation. My my mom is sitting right here and she was supposed to be dead. Okay. And she said, that's okay. I've had a good long life. Um, Put me in comfort care. Well, everybody was shocked when a week ago she's throwing a beanbag thing through the, (laughs) just standing out there not even getting tired. Okay. And I, yeah, well, uh, I'm supposed to be dead. How many times over? And I, for years, had not enough air, not enough strength. And the church prayed for me, not just here, but all around. And God not only healed me in a way that doctor after doctor have said to me, they're shocked. The latest one, one of the latest ones said, in my practice, I've never seen anybody improve as much as you did. And so I'm here preaching. My mom's here learning. Had we died, God wouldn't change. He, he's in charge. He still loves us. So that God answer to prayer doesn't prove that the group doing the praying is more pious than other groups. That's right. It shows that God uses the means he promised to use and that God is the one who gave us access to the throne of grace. And he brings us to himself. Now back to our Exodus analogy. When God brought Israel out, God brought them to himself. So it's starting with the burning bush and the promises of God. So I want to say, just encourage this. You don't have to be proving your piety by how long you fasted and prayed and how much sleep deprivation you went through or how we're better than some other church or anything like that. We are recipients of God's kindness and love and grace. Peter didn't have some extraordinary expectation that he was going to get out of that prison because he had a hard time believing he was getting out. Uh, And as we'll see as we go forward, the praying church didn't expect that Peter was going to get out. They were just being faithful. But in the reality of it, he did get out. Their prayers were answered and they had a hard time believing it was Peter. Now, I want to encourage you, dear saints, that if you start thinking about yourself, you're going to be like me and think, I'm not very great, and um, I don't even, I'm not even sure how God puts up with me. But if God can care about me and hear the prayers of ordinary people, and keep me alive on the earth so I can preach through Ephesians, which is why I want to be here. He cares about anybody and everybody who knows him. Okay? And please know that. Don't think that you're not good enough to pray. That's not the point. It isn't how good we are. Uh, We've been going through Hebrews And the great people of faith in Hebrews 11, this is on the radio for our Critical Issues podcast, they had faith that God would do what he said he was going to do. And that's what is called great faith. And I believe that too. Yes, Nancy. Go ahead, Brian. Thank you. Um, 
Bob, in uh, uh, verse 6, when you were going through that, where Peter's sleeping between the two guards, he's yeah. chained up, and they got the guards outside, and, and you said, well, that's a little overkill. Well, it was also overkill when a dead Messiah was inside the tomb, and it seems like a parallel there, yeah. and it seems like... They weren't going to let him out. They weren't going to let him out. It, it, it seems like even though... The uh, disciples didn't expect Peter to get out. It seems like there might have been the slightest thought in the backs of the minds of these Pharisees and powers to be that something might happen. What do you what do you think about that? Well, they had reason to worry about that because something had already happened a bunch of times. Okay, the miracles that Jesus did were not private. Okay, the by the Gospels is public truth and in John 6 for example look at all the people that saw the bread multiplied and everything that Jesus did there and so people knew that that this Jesus had a huge following and the reason for the following is he did things that nobody else had ever done now if you want to know about the hardness of heart now, we're, taking, we're getting out of Luke Acts a little bit and looking at Matthew. But who more than the guards at the tomb knew what happened? Eric, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. They're paid off. And then what's so interesting is it's a capital offense to engage in grave robbing in the day. Well, why aren't the disciples ever arrested for that? And it just shows that all of those in the leadership, the guards themselves, they knew what had happened. And it does. It shows the hardness of the human heart. They knew the facts, and yet they wouldn't believe they in them. They did not care. Because they were morally opposed to them. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that's a distinction that, by the way, Bob has made numerous times between natural inability and moral inability. Moral inability says people may know the facts, but they don't like it. Yeah. And that's what Jesus describes in John 3, that when the light came into the world, they loved their deeds of darkness. They loved darkness rather than light. It's not that there's no evidence that there was light. There was. What happened in the, the, here? The, the, the angel comes and all these, the light and all this stuff happens. There's evidence. One guy set out to see if there was any evidence for the claims of Christianity, a, a philosopher, and he studied and studied and studied and came to the conclusion that there was, that these things really happened. But he never became a believer. He said, well, it's just for the Jews. Why didn't he become a believer? For lack of evidence? No, because of a hard heart. So the chains that need to come, out, come off for us is the chains of darkness and unbelief. And God uses the gospel to, to cause those chains to fall off by his mighty power. Because uh, we saw that, Acts twelve seven, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, the light shone in the cell, struck Peter's side, woke him up saying, get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Verse 7. Let's go to verse 12 through 14. And when he realized this, now Peter finally figures out what literally happened. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Now this is probably, uh, Eric, you preached through Mark. Uh, I think most scholars think this was the Mark who wrote the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah, so Eric would confirm that, that this was Mark who wrote the gospel. So here we have someone who also is an eyewitness to what was going on. See, the Bible is not a book of fairy tales written by people with vivid imaginations. Okay, people are amazingly creative. I believe in the Bible's doctrine of creation in God's image followed by a fall. There are a lot of really talented, creative people in the world that can do amazing things who don't know God. They can create religions. They can write fantasy books and make movies and tell stories that are captivating and make great poetry and paintings and 
engineering feats. There's a lot of things that humans can do because they're created in God's image. But conversion isn't an act of human talent. It's a supernatural act of God. And I've mentioned this before, and I'm working on a sermon over uh, for a couple of weeks from now. I've been working on it the last week or two, and I thought it was going to be for one Sunday, but there were too many concepts. I emailed you, Eric. I, uh, seven concepts in three verses, so I had to break it into two parts. But the point is this. Conversion isn't the act of man, it's the act of God. And if there's anything to learn from it, it's that God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. And I was looking at some cross-references. Even this morning, I woke up and I thought, I, can't, I, thought, I was thinking about verse, so I got to go run and find it in my computer. And it was later when God was saying to the people, I did not choose you because you were the greatest of all peoples. But you were the least in order to keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's nothing in the narrative in Genesis 12 about the choosing of Abraham to suggest that Abraham had more to offer to God than everybody else in the Middle East at that time. God uses, and so I think we talked about this. If we learn anything, it's that God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us to show that he can use even people that have nothing going for them. He, even convert, he, can, he can even convert his own enemies, like Saul of Tarsus. Okay, so he went to the house of Mary, mother of John, who's called Mark. Many were gathered and were praying. Now remember, they're praying, which is the right thing to do. Don't start thinking, I don't think I have enough faith, or I don't think I'm a good enough person, or I don't think I'm pious enough. It'd be a waste of time for me to pray. But if I could go find some holy man who prayed, then maybe something good would happen. Don't think like that. If you start thinking like that, you've already started paving the road back to Rome. Why do you think they do these sort of things? Why are there big vaulted ceilings and giant cathedrals and all this stuff and fancy garb and robes and dress and holy, holy father and holy this and holy that. Why all that? Because they want some version of transcendence that is beyond just ordinary people. But when the curtain gets pulled back, like in that movie, we talked about people having creativity. There's that movie with the little guy back there. These holy men aren't so great. And all people are sinners, but these are sinners pretending to be holy who've never been converted and don't give God the glory. Yes. <clears throat> Referring back to your dining at the king's table and God's act of reversal, it's always the pious people that think they're going to be at the banquet and it's Esther. the less the lesser people that don't think they are that are actually yeah. the true yeah. attendees well what did the guy uh okay it was mordecai and haman right is that right what did haman think who would the king want to honor more than me oh let's have a great banquet okay and he comes up with his plan and Who's honored? Mordecai, drat. <laughs> prayed him around. Mordecai didn't ask to be prayed around. Okay, but look at, let's just finish this verse. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda, I think that word, I mean, it means rose, came to answer. Notice there's details here, names, places, of rulers, geographical locations. The Bible is not a book of mythology. 
This is cold, sober fact. One of my CIC readers who I've been trying to help, who's doing pretty good at coming around to, to really understanding the, the implication of the gospel, but said, well, anybody that believes in Jesus wants to be a Christian. I said, oh, even the Mormons? Their, their Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. Oh, maybe there's a problem there. Okay, we got to get the right Jesus. But uh, to, to her credit, she wanted to learn. And so I don't, I want people to know it's safe to talk to me. But she recognized Peter's voice. Rhoda, under, she didn't see him. She just heard his voice. And she got so excited, she didn't even open the door for him. Hello. Well, it's Peter. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front gate. She didn't even see him. They're in there praying. Well, let's go to the next one. This is so cool. And they said, you're out of your mind. Do you notice the great faith they had? <laughs> you're nuts. Well, look at that faith. But they were obeying God and they're praying. See, contrary to the false teachers, the answer isn't based on the fact that we expected a certain outcome and never doubted that we'd get the outcome we want. I read books when I was a college student in Bible college that said, how to write your own ticket with God. And it was based on Mark where it said he will have whatever he saith. So that if you say a certain thing and never say anything else and never ever admit anything but what you say, then you'll be able to write your own ticket with God, said Kenneth Hagin. And I believed that sort of thing for a time until thankfully I saw there was something seriously wrong there. These people God answered the fact that they prayed in obedience to the Lord who told them to pray in all things. And God answered it. And it wasn't based on how much they expected a certain outcome. Please know that. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, back in the uh, late 70s, I read all these self-help books. And there was, uh, it was called Auto-Suggestion. And uh, <clears throat> it was by, um, oh, who are some of those authors? Uh, Vin Vincent. Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale, yeah. Uh, he was the He was the he was inspiration the for Robert Schuller, right. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, they just said all you have to do is uh, read something that you are going to obtain whatever it is you wanted. Right. And eventually, your words would come true. Yeah. Basically, Lonnie, what that is, is the idea that reality is a state of mind. And that if you can change your mind, you can change your reality and get the outcome that you intend to get. Now, I am not saying that God doesn't answer prayer. Don't get me wrong. He does. What I am saying, that God's answer to prayer is beyond what we hope and think. He, he, he at the one and same time, answers our prayers and brings forward his sovereign purpose. And we did not fail God if we ever say, if it be thy will. Those teachers said that too. If you say that, they mock you and laugh at you and call you an unbeliever. Despite the fact Jesus said it. So, God answers prayer and we have access to the throne of grace. They, they kept saying, this, it is, it's his angel. She kept insisting it was Peter, and they said, no, it's his angel. But Peter's still knocking. Hello, I'm out of jail. You going to let me into this house? And he's knocking away. 
And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. <laughs> ah, wow. Amazed is an interesting word. It's another link. It's another link to other things in the Bible that preceded this. And the word amazed is existemi. And it's used 17 times in the New Testament. Nine of those are in Luke Acts. So over half are in Luke Acts. And so I have a printout of all the New Testament usages. And this amazement in Luke Acts... exists to me. Here it is. Logos Bible software. I don't get paid anything for saying this. It's well worth it if you're a young theology student or even an old one. Wow. exists to me. Here's all of the uses based on the, the root, the lemma. And on the left is the Greek. And on the right I have here the New American Standard. You can choose the translation. And Let's just look at Luke Acts and get a few examples. Remember when Jesus was young and teaching, it says Luke 2.47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, Luke 8.56, her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Luke 24.22, but also some of the women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. Now, this is a, that's a good echo. Some of the women amazed them. How? What were they saying? That the tomb was empty. And that Jesus was raised. Wow. Remember Thomas had a little trouble believing it in John? Acts 2.7, they were amazed and astonished. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They spoke in tongues and some understood what was being said from various dialects and they were expounding or exclaiming the mighty deeds of God. Prophecy is to exclaim the mighty deeds of God. And in Acts 2.12, they continued in amazement. What does this mean? Acts 8.9. Now, now, this is a bad example of it. There's a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Oh, reminds me of a video. Uh, some CIC reader asked me about a certain teacher I never heard of, so I sent it to our daughter Jessica, who is on social media, knows all this stuff that I don't know. And she sent me back a link to a YouTube video. And I played the link. And it was this Bill Johnson's group out in Redding, California. And they were claiming that the glory cloud, like the one in Exodus, was coming into their church. Okay? And so they have a video... And there's some young kids going. And then they showed, they panned up. And they showed, here's these big spotlights and some stuff happening, some gold stuff. And they were making this claim. Well, then it found out that someone had put gold glitter in the HVAC system. And the gold glitter blowing out was going through the lights and they were claiming this is somehow the glory showed up at their meeting. So Jessica had sent me this uh, link to that and um, here's, let me, let me say something about that sort of thing. The end doesn't justify the means. In fact, the end is a bad one too because now you believe that these people are great, holy, pious Christians I wrote an article about Bill Johnson and I didn't talk about glory clouds. I talked about his doctrine of Christ where he claims Christ lost his divinity. And I call that blasphemy because he claimed to be the great I am and I am doesn't come and go. He is. So that's heresy in its own sense. 
But the end doesn't justify the means either because they're putting their faith in the wrong thing. That somehow we are the pious Christians and all the rest are these dreaded, horrible, ordinary people who God doesn't even like. He wishes we were more like the people out in Redding, California. But I saw that. What is, where, how come pastors don't have a conscience? I mean, we're shocked when we watch the politics going on and wonder why our politicians don't have a conscience. And rightfully so, we wonder. It's really bad. But at least you would think the preacher would have one. But anyhow, so that was the video I saw. And uh, so I was able to email back to the inquirer and say, this is really bad. I wouldn't listen to it. Yes. You know, one thing that strikes me here, Bob, is notice here Peter has been just miraculously delivered from a prison, but now he has to knock for believers to open the door. And you see this all the way through the scriptures. You'll see, for example, Jesus in his human side, he's asleep in the back of the boat, and they have to wake him up, and then the next minute he can calm the sea. Why? Because he exercises his divine good, oh, authority. Good reading. Yeah. That's in Luke Acts. Yeah. Yeah, email. Too bad so, you don't drink coffee, my yeah. friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I don't know if water is much of yeah, a well, <laughs> I need a lot of water because of my allergy medication. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out. That's a great reading. I think it's, I think it's intended. They have to wake Jesus up, but he can call him the sea. Peter's miraculously delivered. The miracles already happened. And he's got out of a prison where he was chained, guarded, way too many soldiers for one Jewish fisherman. And they won't let him in the door. <laughs> Open the door. How hard is that? Well, you know, it's his angel. There, there are some of the commentators say that there was a belief that each person had an angel. Do you know anything about that, Eric? I, I just read that that's what some of them may have believed. But... Uh, Let's turn to, uh, I would uh, like someone to read, excuse me, Ephesians 3.20. And I intend to comfort us with this. By the way, ecstasy is where the English word ecstasy comes from. But here it means amazement. Uh, By the way, etymology doesn't determine meaning. Usage does. But... uh, there were a lot of amazing things that happened in Luke Acts. That's the point. And they were supernatural acts of God. Okay, we want Ephesians 3.20. Eric, you got it? Do you want to, yeah, sure, I can read it. It says, uh, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. Oh, that's the next yeah, verse. But yep. in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Amen. Amen. That's a benediction. God is not limited to what we're able to ask or think. But we have the privilege of asking. That's a great blessing from God. Verse 17 of Acts 12. But motioning to them with his hand to be described, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. Now, here's our echo of Exodus 3, 8 from the Septuagint. Now, I want you to know that I have in my software the Septuagint in various versions. So I can go check these things out and not just take somebody's word for it. And so I did pull up the Septuagint Greek of Exodus 3, 8, and these things are in there. Now, I mentioned to you, some of you, Dr. Tannehill's great work, The Narrative Unity of Luke X, Volume 1 and 2. And I'm going to quote Tannehill to give you a little taste for what scholarship does to help us as we're studying. Tannehill, quote, that God, quote, rescued, unquote, the people from the hand. And then it's exelato ek keras out of their oppressor, out of the hand of the oppressor, is also a repeated statement within Exodus. 
It occurs four times in the scene in which Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, rejoins him, Exodus 18.4 and 8-10. through 10. The introduction to the same scene repeats the statement that the Lord brought out. There's that same word, rescued, Israel, that's a Greek word, from Egypt, Exodus 18.1. Tannehill says, Acts 13.7 states that the Lord brought out, same word, Israel from Egypt. And in Acts 7.36 and 40 indicates Moses brought out the people as in Exodus 32.1 and 23. Acts also repeats the statement that God came down to rescue from Egypt. Acts 7.34, Exodus, quotes Exodus 3. That was Stephen's speech. Thus the three phrases in question concerning mistreatment, I mentioned that earlier, God's rescue and God bringing out the people are used repeatedly in the Septuagint in connection with the Exodus. The narrator of Acts, that would be Luke, also applies these phrases to the Exodus. Then they reappear in the story of Peter's rescue from prison. The God who brought out Israel from the house of bondage, Exodus 13, 3, 14, and so on, and Peter from Herod's prison is still the God of rescue and Exodus for oppressed people who bear fruitful witness to Jesus. Wow. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Dear ones, do you believe God can rescue you? I do. This is, this is intended by the Holy Spirit to encourage us and ground us in the faith and in our confidence that God answers prayer. And I believe to get rid of the fear. I'll, I'll tell you, and I, I get emails from readers, and it helps me understand what people are going through and the effects of false teaching on people, because that's what, where this fear comes from. We're being told over and over again that if you don't get it just right, you're in trouble with God. And if you didn't pray just the right words with the right motives in the right time for long enough at the right place, then God's not going to hear you. In fact, the false teachers are portraying God to be like the fickle gods of the pagans. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. How did Elijah mock those prophets of Baal? Well, maybe you didn't do it right. Maybe your God, maybe your God is taking a nap. I'm, I'm actually euphemizing what he really said. Maybe, you did, maybe they're cutting themselves, they're doing all this stuff, hoping that maybe God would hear them. But it was futile. The God who rescues you from sin and death and brings you all the way to himself in glory is not fickle. He loves you He cares for you, and he's not demanding that you jump through hoops to prove your sincerity or to give away your money to prove your piety. You're free to give and to pray according to his grace as you see fit. And the readers and listeners that I hear from are being told by false teachers all over the world that the false teachers are the hyper-pious holy people and that these people better get it right or nothing good is ever going to happen. They're in trouble. 
you didn't do it right. You didn't say it right. The more I listen to this, the more I think Roman Catholicism is like a giant electromagnet trying to pull everybody back to it. Come back here. Come back here. We've got holy people who take oaths. We take oaths of poverty. We take oaths of chastity. We've got glorious pomp and circumstances and high and holy men. We've got magical mystery. We've got the wafer that's somehow Christ. We've got this and we've got that. What about you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I don't think God would ever listen to me, but maybe this holy man, God would listen to him. That's what these people think. The holy men have no self-doubts because they don't care. They're not for real. They don't sit and feel guilty. They just watch the people grovel. You ever get that idea when you watch some of these politicians? Do they even have a conscience? Do they care about anything? How can you be so wicked and feel good about it? I don't, you know what, that's, how the, that's the depravity of the human heart. And because of that, the people that want to be right with God are susceptible to being victimized. Yes. And, and because of our own self-doubt, we start, which is, we don't need self-confidence, we need confidence in God. But I want this incident to do something for us by God's grace is intended by the Holy Spirit. To know that God brings forth his purposes and he uses the means he's ordained, including prayer, and is not going to be stymied because of our lack of the right expectation about what's going to happen right here and right now. And if that would have been the case Peter would have stayed in jail because they wouldn't even believe it was him when he was out. And Jesus would have stayed in the tomb because they wouldn't believe it was him when he was out. It's not up to us. It's up to God, but he uses means. And so I ask people, do you believe that God loves you because he demonstrated his love by sending his own son to die for sins the pre-existent son came, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who taught us God is love, who demonstrated his love by dying for sins and by proving that he is loved by being raised from the dead and ascending bodily before witnesses into heaven and promising that he'll come again and bring us to himself. Do you believe that that's true, objectively? Oh, yes. What's causing your concern? Well, the pastor told me that uh, I'm cursed because in my family, I was uh, in a family where some of the members were in the occult and this and that happened. So then I say, okay, if you believe that, do you believe what Paul said in Galatians and in Ephesians? that the way to be cursed is to be of law works and the way to be blessed is to be in Christ. Are you in Christ by faith or not? Yes. But bad things are happening to me, so I must be cursed and it must be because some aunt was using a Ouija board because they told me that at the church. See, these false teachers are constantly pulling the rug out from under Christians. Pull out the rug, pull out the rug. You're bad. You're not good enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't give enough. You shouldn't listen to this, these people that are Bible teachers. I heard that, well, don't listen to him because he's just an intellectual. It's all just intellectualism. The Holy Ghost doesn't need our intellect. He just wants us to, you know, use all this jargon. That's a false dichotomy. How is understanding and believing the promises of God, dead, dry intellectualism. 
The problem is unbelief, not whether we use our minds or don't use our minds. Every single word that God has spoken can only be understood with our rational minds. A lot of the stuff, this mysticism, is just the idea the reader determines the meaning. One person rebuked me about that, and I said, okay, let's make it easier. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. Now, this person, I probably had raised children. So if you raise your children, and you're teaching them the Ten Commandments, and one of them is you shall not steal, and you're telling your child you're wrong because you stole something that belonged to your brother or sister, what if your child turned around and said, well, you're just a dead, dry intellectual? To me, stealing means if I have something that somebody else wants and I have more than they do, therefore I'm obviously a robber. That's what Marx teaches, right? You're bad, you're evil, you're the robber because you have more. And the person who steals said, well, I was just creating equity here. So I took what my brother had. Now, in my case, I didn't steal from my brother, but I always had to borrow from him because I spent all my money and he saved his. Right, Mom? David probably still has the money he got when he was 12 years old. My mind was always gone, so I had to borrow from him if I needed money because he just was more uh, careful with his money. I tried to, uh, I tried to uh, save coins. I had all these coins, and I had 50-cent pieces Standing Liberty 50 cent pieces with different years, they never made it all the way to high school because I needed money and I spent them. Well, here's the point. When I said that to a CIC reader, does thou shalt not steal mean what God intended it to mean using the words that he used when he wrote those words on stone? Or does the reader decide what it means? I sent out an email. And then she said, I think I'm going to buy one of your books. Not that my books are, in fact, they're out of print, so she couldn't do it now. But the point was, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. Because they talk about this highfalutin, we got to follow the Holy Ghost, and we're going to be this and that. And it doesn't sound like you're saying the Bible means what the reader decided. But that's what it really means. The words mean what they say. My words, Jesus said, are spirit and truth. You're not unspiritual for believing what the Bible actually says. Okay? You're not unspiritual because you pray because God told you to. Why do you pray? Because God told me to, and I think it's a great privilege. Exodus 3, Eric, could you look that up and read it, and maybe we can... uh, at least look at the English version of it and we got a minute or two I don't know what all I printed out here oh I got it in the Greek that's not going to do you much good if I read it though (laughs) yeah let's see here it is 3.8 it says and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. There's our word, exago. Oh, sure. Out of the land to a good and broad land, a land growing, flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, yeah. the Perizzites, okay. Hivites, and the place, I'm sorry, in the Jebusites. That's right. Yeah, I'm so the, the words I was looking for, that's the English. Yeah. <laughs> and so the same... Now, the Hebrew was the original. I'm not denying that. But ex ireo is to rescue, and that's used in Exodus 3 8. And to bring out is ex ago. Ex is out, and ago is to bring or carry. So to carry out, to rescue, and to carry out. That's what God did. Why did he do it? To keep his promises to the patriarchs. 
even including that they'd be 400 years in another land. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Do you believe that God loves you? If you ask him, it pleases God because we know he said it does because we have a relationship. If the answer isn't what you hope, it doesn't change anything because our own parents don't give us everything we ask for because sometimes the idea of giving a shotgun to a 10-year-old is a bad idea. (laughs) Everything I ever asked for was a gun, right, Mom? (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't get one. Probably a good idea. Now, uh, so God cares for you and he loves you. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for caring for us. Thank you for answering the prayers of the church and bringing Peter out. And thank you that we can confidently trust you and not be full of fear because we're thinking about ourselves. Thank you, Lord. And we pray for Eric that you give him wisdom and words to help us understand you better as he speaks the sermon. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 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 God bless you.